At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 35, The Early Cold War in the Middle East and the Iran Crisis. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. In this episode, we're going to explore the early Cold War in the Middle East. We'll be taking a helicopter view of the region during this period and a closer look at one of the biggest crises during the period, the Iran Crisis. As always, forgive me for any mispronunciations. The Cold War came to the Middle East early. In 1946, the Soviet Union laid claim to the Persian province of Azerbaijan, which precipitated the first of many confrontations in the region between the United States and the Soviet Union. However, as we will see, the United States and the Soviet Union were not always at odds in the Middle East. Beyond America and the Soviet Union, Britain and France also sought to maintain an influence in the region, which complicated the domestic and international politics of the region. Like we saw in Asia and we will examine later in Africa, decolonization and the rise of nationalism in the region created a volatile political backdrop which was only intensified by the Cold War. The history of the Cold War in the Middle East is inevitably linked with oil, as is its current politics to the present. Ironically, both the United States and the Soviet Union didn't necessarily need the region's oil at the beginning of the Cold War, though the U.S. would come to depend on it by the 1970s. In 1941, the United States was the world's largest oil producer, making up 63% of global oil production. The Soviet Union uh, produced some 10.7% of the world's oil. The U.S. and Soviet Union produced far more oil in contrast to the other industrial powers of the early 20th century, such as Germany, Japan, France, or Italy, which had little or no domestic oil production. Nonetheless, the experience of World War II with its mechanized armies, fleets of aircraft, and vast armadas were all powered by oil. Its production, supply, and transport were all crucial to the war effort, and modern armies, air forces, and navies were completely dependent on it. Control of the world's oil supplies was not just an economic imperative, but a military imperative as well. For the Arabs, World War II resulted in the weakening of the French and British empires in the Middle East. The Arab states slowly started to assert their independence. Syria and Lebanon uh, came under British occupation during the war, which essentially removed France from the region. Britain herself, by the late 1940s, lacked the political will and resources to reassert her political dominance in the region. In the aftermath of the war as well, with British support, the Arab states created the Arab League, an institution that has survived to the present and works to coordinate the relations of Arab states, safeguarding their sovereignty and independence. The United States' principal objective in the region was political stability and as a firewall to the further spread of communism. The United States sought to prevent Soviet influence in the region, preserving its considerable oil wealth for Western consumption. The region, by the nature of its geography, was also a strategic location in the Cold War. 
It lay at the juncture of three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. It bordered three major bodies of water, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and the Indian Ocean. More importantly, it lay just south of the Soviet Union. FDR had begun the, the process of securing the region for American interest in February 1945 when he met with the king of Saudi Arabia, El Bin Sud, uh, signing an exclusive agreement for the exploration and explo exploitation of its oil reserves with a consortium of American oil companies, which would become the Amer Arabian American Oil Company, or Aramco. A major business coup at the time, as the region had been a virtual British monopoly. Sayyid was a staunch anti-communist, and Saudi Arabia lacked an organized nationalist movement at the time, like Egypt, Iraq, or Syria, where large urban populations organized into political parties as a result of increased literacy, books, and newspapers. These populations tended to be suspicious of foreign economic and military influ influence. Nevertheless, Saudi Arabia, with its huge stretches of desert, was largely rural, with a very small urban population. Starting in the 1930s, even before the Second World War, Saud had saw the United States as a rising power in the world, and he had sought an alliance between his nation and the United States as an investment in the future. Saudi Arabia had the largest oil reserves in the world, and oil was crucial to the post-war recovery of Europe and, by extension, the continued prosperity of the United States via its trade with Europe. In the coming decades, Saudi Arabia supplied a cheap and abundant flow of oil to Western Europe and an ever-increasing profit for American oil companies that came to dominate the world's oil markets. The United States also gained bases in the region, sidestepping the traditional great powers of the Middle East, Great Britain, and France. These bases, until their closure in 1962, added to U.S. airlift capabilities and allowed for spy flights into the southern uh, Soviet Union. This was critical, as in the early Cold War, spy satellites didn't exist yet, and many American planes, such as the B-29, lacked the range that later aircraft, such as the U-2 and SR-71, would have. Therefore, the United States sought to establish a reliable ruling class in the Middle East, friendly to the West, which could resist Soviet influence and maintain the free flow of oil. They hoped that strong leaders and strong institutions, particularly the armies, would suffice to maintain internal control and resist Soviet encroachment. Ideas of reform were limited to economic reform, improving farming and industrial de in de uh, development. On occasion, issues of human rights abuses would surface, but the United States never let these matters circumvent its strategic or economic objectives for the region. The threat of the Soviet Union compelled successive administrations, both Democratic and Republican during the Cold War, to back authoritarian regimes in the region. Promoting democratic regimes in the region was not Washington's goal during the Cold War. The promotion of democracy, free trade, or neoliberalism and nation-building was something that grew out of neoliberalism and neoconservative movements of the post-Cold War era. It's important that we not let contemporary politics of the, in the, of the Middle East and the United States cloud our historical perspective or, or understanding of the region in the period of the Cold War. Although politically speaking, these objectives seem reasonable enough, it would prove to be more difficult than originally imagined in 1945 and 1946. The first Arab-Israeli war would complicate Americans' relations with the region, as we will see in our next episode. The decline of the British and French empires in the region also complicated American plans and objectives. Great Britain in the late 1940s, despite its withdrawal from India and Palestine, sought to maintain its influence in the region. 
It saw the United States as an interloper in what it saw as its traditional sphere of influence. The U.S. saw Britain, on the other hand, often as a block to progress in the region and a decrepit empire that lacked the resources and power to to play a constructive role and cause more instability than it did security. On the other hand, both the United States and Great Britain needed each other. Great Britain, as we have seen in past episodes, needed America's financial resources, and the U.S. needed Great Britain's military network of bases and political contacts to successfully build a firewall to stop the spread of communism in the region. I want to take a quick break here and thank our contributors to the show. If you enjoy this topic and the nuanced approach I've taken with the show, examining little-known or spoken-about aspects of the Cold War like the Cold War in Scandinavia, the independence of Indonesia, or the Malayan Emergency, please help to support us by becoming a monthly contributor through Patreon at the $5 level or whatever amount you feel is appropriate through the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you hate hearing me beg for money and interrupting the history, become a contributor. That way you can take advantage of our new commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. The first crisis to grip the region was the Iran crisis. As part of the wartime agreement, the Soviet Union and Great Britain had agreed to occupy Iran given the pro-Nazi sympathy of some of the country's elite and the Shah Riza, who was forced to abdicate in favor of his son, Mohammad Riza. The Soviets occupied northern Iran and the British the south. It was stipulated that six months after the war, both the British and the Soviets would withdraw from their respective zones of control. Although the United States was a party to the treaty, they had sent very few troops to the region. Following the end of the war, the British withdrew from the south, but the Soviets did not, uh, which precipitated one of the first crises of the Cold War. In fact, the Soviets increased the number of its troops in the region. Stalin, sensing the vulnerability of the British Empire and America's desire to maintain the Grand Alliance and establish the United Nations, saw it as a perfect opportunity to extend Soviet influence in the region. The Soviet occupation authorities, backed by 60,000 Red Army troops, quickly installed allies into positions of local authority throughout northern Iran and purged those it saw as enemies. The Tudik Party, or the Iranian Communist Party, was allowed to carve out a zone of influence for itself, backed by the Soviets. The Tudik openly agitated against the government in Tehran, and the party provoked ethnic divisions among Kurds and Arziz. Uh, During the war, neither Washington nor London challenged Moscow over these actions. But with the war over, Soviet refusal to withdraw caused alarm bells to ring in London and Washington. In 1946, the 2D party announced that they would create an autonomous Azerbaijan region inside Iran with broad jurisdiction. A party was created, the Azerbaijan Democratic Party, the ADP, which pressed for independence from Tehran. The 2D party in Azerbaijan subsequently dissolved itself and its members joined the ADP. The ADP party then introduced a new flag and its own stamps. Monuments and statues dedicated to the Shah were torn down, and Moscow time was introduced, which ran 30 minutes behind Tehran. In Iran, as we saw in episode 33 in Eastern Europe, the Soviets were willing to use the forces of nationalism as a way of putting in place politicians loyal to the Kremlin. It's important to remember what was happening in the rest of the world as the Iranian crisis unfolded. Across Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union was solidifying its control of the region through the establishment of Marxist-Leninist states. 
In France and Italy, the communist parties had become important political parties in their respective nations, and many feared that they too would try and seize power. In Greece, the government was fighting a communist insurgency, and Turkey as well had come under Soviet pressure just to surrender the Dargonelles. In Vietnam, fighting had broken out between the Viet Minh and the French, and a civil war was raging in China between the nationalists and the communists. Meanwhile, the European colonial empires had started a precipitous decline. As we mentioned, the French were already fighting a communist insurgency in Indochina. The Dutch were fighting one in Indonesia, and the British were making arrangements to grant independence to India, Burma, and Pakistan. For the Soviets, Iran had always been a region of interest, even in Tsarist times. Its warm water ports off the Indian Ocean and its energy resources were very enticing. As early as 1925, Moscow and Tehran had established the Kavar Kuren company that exploited various deposits. The company, unfortunately for the Soviets, failed as a result of mismanagement and lack of capital investment. Oil was especially important in Stalin's view. The German drive to the Baku oil fields in 1942 and the critical role oil played in the war convinced Stalin that future wars would require vast supplies of oil. Moreover, as I have highlighted in past episodes, Stalin believed that another world war would erupt in 10 to 20 years, so securing Iranian oil now would pay dividends in the next world war. And in 1944, the Soviets sent a delegation to Iran to revive the defunct Soviet oil company. During the war, both Great Britain and the United States didn't discourage Soviet petrol economic investment in Iran and had declared that they had no objections to Soviet oil grants. Where they did clash with the Soviets was their continued occupation of northern Iran in violation of the Tripart Agreement. In southern Iran, the British had established their sphere of influence. The Anglo-Iranian oil company dominated Iran's southern oil fields and controlled the, country, the entirety of Iran's oil production. The company was Great Britain's largest overseas asset and an important source of income to the empire. For many Iranians, the company represented a symbol of national humiliation and abuse at the hands of the British, which robbed the Iranian people of their national wealth. Britain was more than willing to sacrifice Iranian sovereignty to reach an accommodation with the Soviets, and the Americans very much wanted to preserve the Grand Alliance, but the Soviet Union's actions in Iran fit into a larger pattern of aggressive actions in Eastern Europe. More importantly, Soviet pressure on both Turkey and Iran, in addition to the communist insurgency in Greece, made Washington and London see it as a fundamental threat to the region, which needed to be confronted. The intervention of great powers into the domestic politics of Iran was nothing new to the Iranians, though. Through much of the early 20th century, reformist nationalists like Mossadegh and aristocrats like Amid Kwavim had dealt with great powers that coveted Iran's land and resources. Whether dealing with Britain or Tsarist Russia, the Iranians were well-versed in the arts of statecraft and international diplomacy. Indeed, despite their loathing of the British, the Iranians saw the Soviets as a greater threat to their long-term security. Traditionally, the Iranians would have sought out the British as a foil against the Soviets, but with Britain's economic and political weakness in the late 1940s, she sought a new nation to offset Soviet power. The clear candidate was the United States. Since the 1930s, the Iranians had been offering oil contracts to the Americans as a way to diversify their customer base away from Britain and the Soviet Union. In Iran, throughout the, re the region, and at the time, the United States was perceived as a more benign and enlightened nation in contrast to the old world great powers. But in the interwar years, the United States showed very little interest in becoming involved with Iran. 
However, with the end of World War II and the Soviet occupation of northern Iran, the United States was the only real option. Iran once again offered drilling rights to American oil companies. The American oil companies decided to pass, but the Iranians decided to push on with asking the United States government to help them remove the Soviet occupation from their country. Although uneager to escalate tensions with the, United, the Soviet Union, Washington did back Iran's position. In an additional move that surprised and angered the Soviets, the Iranians also declared that so long as their, its territory was occupied, it would not consider new oil concessions. If the Soviets wanted new drilling rights, they would have to withdraw their troops. In two moves, Iran had reset the diplomatic framework of the region and ensured that most of its domestic concerns would be taken into consideration. In essence, the Iranians had used the political currents of the Cold War to their advantage to end the occupation of its nation by Britain and the Soviet Union. Quivum, the prime minister, also traveled to Moscow to assuage Stalin's hurt feelings. He didn't back down on his position that the Russians withdraw their troops, but should the Soviets withdraw their, their forces, the Iranians promised that they would be open to exploring oil concessions with the Soviets. Stalin, true to form, though, decided to play hardball, and when Quevin returned home, he received a letter from Stalin insisting Iran recognize the autonomy of the Azerbaijan Republic. He also insisted on the creation of a Soviet Iranian oil company to exploit the oil of northern Iran and asserted a Soviet right to occupy the nation in order to maintain stability as pursuant to a 1921 treaty signed between Iran and the Soviet Union. Quivum knew that Stalin was swimming against the diplomatic tide, though. Stalin's moves in Eastern Europe and his moves against Turkey were already cracking the Grand Alliance, and he had lost his veneer of legality with the end of the tripartite agreement. Quivum now moved to place the matter before the newly created United Nations. The Soviets didn't want to be the first state censored at the United Nations, and the Americans would be invested in their, pro in their protest as a matter of principle, as the UN was a U.S. project and they didn't want to see it fail out the gate after investing so much in getting it off the ground. Moreover, President Truman saw the crisis in Iran as part of containment, as a block to the Soviets capturing the region's oil reserves, which Western Europe was dependent on. The loss of these resources for the West would cause economic catastrophe, especially as Europe had not yet recovered from World War II and remained in a delicate economic state. Great Britain initially was reluctant about pressing the Soviet Union at the UN, they thought the method might boomerang back at them as Iran could bring Britain to the United Nations. But the British perspective changed as the Soviets cracked down in Eastern Europe, and as they saw the Soviets not live up to their end of the agreement and the naughty treaty that had divided Eastern Europe into spears of influence. The two deep party agitations among workers in southern oil fields had already caused strikes and protests. London believed that Moscow would cease to respect its sphere of influence in the South, endangering its considerable financial assets there. Britain subsequently joined America and Iran's efforts at the United Nations to evict the Soviets. The Soviets attempted to block the motion, but failed and were forced to accept bilateral discussions. Quivum also tried to offer the Soviets carrots to leave. He relaxed controls on the 2D party and incorporated some of its members into his government. He also assured the Soviets that he was open to discussions with the Azerbaijan Republic. Moscow dug in, sending more troops, and offered further support to the, its Azerbaijan allies. The Americans and British stuck to their guns, though, refusing to remove the issue from the United Nations, and the Soviets blinked first. 
They sent a new ambassador offering to withdraw its forces if Tehran signed a letter assuring it receive oil concessions, which the Iranians agreed to. Nevertheless, as soon as the Soviet troops withdrew, Quivum double-crossed the Soviets and had the Iranian parliament reject oil concessions with the Soviet Union, while Iranian troops crushed the breakaway pro-Soviet republic in Azerbaijan, executing its main leaders. The sudden Western resolve on the Iranian crisis surprised and perplexed the Soviets as they had misjudged how their actions made them appear to the West and how the West saw Soviet actions in the Middle East, coupled with its moves in the Mediterranean and Eastern Europe. In the end, Stalin wasn't going to risk World War III for Iran. He was interested in its oil, but it was more of a nice-to-have versus an essential in his mind like Poland or Romania. The Middle East was a peripheral to his core interest in Europe. The United States was determined to limit Soviet expansion, and short of war, they were willing to use the new United Nations and international opinion to compel the Soviets to leave. America saw the Middle East as a vital economic region, whereas Stalin again saw the Middle East as a sideshow. The fact that Quivum was determined to preserve Iran's sovereignty made the task of American diplomacy much easier. Quivum was one of the few leaders in history, along with Hitler and Tito, to outfox Stalin. Iran was ultimately able to manipulate the United States and the zeitgeist of the political moment to achieve its own international and domestic political objectives. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 35, The Early Cold War in the Middle East and the Iran Crisis, 1945-1950. to Don't forget to tune in October the 15th for the next part of The Early Cold War in the Middle East when we will be looking at the creation of Israel and the first Arab-Israeli war. How was Israel able to defeat all of its neighbors after having just been established and so small in comparison? What role did the Cold War take in this conflict, and how did the conflict affect the Cold War itself? If you want to financially contribute to the show, help provide source material for future episodes, follow us on social media, check out photos for this or past episodes, or email us questions, again, check out the website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.